Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case File 12, Part 2, The Texas Hitman. Welcome. Hello. Hi. So this is Part 2 of our two-part episode, Mr. Charles Harrelson, the Texas Hitman. Texas Hitman. And we ended last episode with the awful last words of Sam DeGellia, mm-hmm. pleading for his life, actually trying to help Harrelson. Yeah, here, you want money, whatever you want, I'll give you. Draws a gun to him. And, of course, Harrelson shoots him. And Watkins goes through the story of what happened that evening. Because, you know, Watkins is the one, he's on the stand, he's giving his testimony. And so he apparently had met Harrelson through a friend. And Harrelson reached out to Watkins and said, Hey, I'll pay for a trip. If you will come with me, we're going to fly down to McAllen. We're going to rent a car. We're going to stay. Just kind of hang out. Go to the red light district. It'll be on me. The red light district? Was Luda there? With some TLC and a red light special. And so he says, it'll be my treat. And Watkins was kind of suspicious because he knew Harrelson wasn't the best guy, but he wanted to accommodate him. And he also knew he was dangerous. So he was kind of worried that if he said no, like what would this entail? Yeah. Because he was an ex-convict himself. So he knew Harrelson's reputation as well as... He, if he did anything wrong, he knew that Harrelson may turn on him. So he just thought, a free trip, why not? So they fly together, and he realized when they checked in for their airlines that Harrelson was going under a fake name. Uh-oh. Which okay. was that Stottenbaum name, Charles Stottenbaum, that he was going by. And Watkins referred to him as Chuck a few times, letting Harrelson know, I know you're going by a fake name and an alias. I'm not going to tell on you. Like, mm-hmm. I know I'm not a bad person. So they fly out to McAllen, and they rent a car under the fake name. And after they checked into their hotel, Harrelson asked Watkins, hey, let's go drive to Reynosa, which is where the red light district was. We're going to go there and hang out, and then we'll go have dinner. While they were at the red light district, they were at a club drinking, and Charles Harrelson leaves the table and says, I'm going to go make a phone call. I'll be back. Well, this is most likely the phone call that Sam DeGellia gets that says, Hey, I'm interested in buying some grain. Do you want to meet with me? So Harrelson comes back to the table and tells Watkins, Okay, I think that uh, I need to meet someone to buy some stuff, so let's go. So they get in the car and they drive to Luby's. And as they pull up, Watkins states that Harrelson points out Sam and says, Hey, that's the guy I need to talk to. So he goes and gets Sam and brings him over to the car. And he introduces Sam to Watkins as a friend of his. This is my friend Sam. Watkins remembered he had a weird last name, but he didn't know what it was. But when they showed him the picture in the courtroom, he did verify that that was Sam DeGellia that he saw in the back seat of the car. So as they're driving, Harrelson tells Watkins to drive as close to the border as possible. Well, they don't get too far away because, you know, they found his body three miles mm-hmm. from Luby's. So as they're driving, Harrelson turned to Sam and pulled out a twenty-five caliber pistol from his coat and pointed it at Sam in the back seat. And he told him, don't do anything. I don't want to hurt you. Don't do anything foolish. I just need to talk to you. And he told Watkins to keep his nose straight and not to look back that what was happening in the back was none of his business. Mm. And Watkins immediately regretted this trip and was like, no wonder he's willing to pay for everything. Something's about to happen. So... Horseshit! I see a gun. I'm gonna fucking flip out. I'm the getaway driver all of a sudden. I'm like, I'm I'm flinging poo at his face to get away and... (laughs) 
Yeah. Wrecking the damn car. Yeah. The stoplight, just get out and take off running. So Harrelson tells Degelia, I'm just trying to teach you a lesson to keep your nose out of other people's businesses. They're driving, and Harrelson tells Watkins, this is a good place. Stop here. So they stop, and he tied his hands together and told him to get on the floorboard in the back seat because they were going to pass this man's house that owns the shack that's down the way where his body was found. And he didn't want, I guess, Sam to be seen. So he gets on the floorboard, and as they approach the shack, Harrelson tells Watkins, stop here. So he takes him out of the car at gunpoint and takes him into the shack. Watkins waits in the car. Mm -hmm. He hears two pops. Harrelson comes and gets in the car. And he states to Watkins that he would kill him too if he doesn't keep quiet. He didn't want to kill him, but if he talked, he would before the sun went down. He told Watkins, this isn't the first SOB I've had to ring the bell on, and it won't be the last. He took the gun apart and threw it along the road in pieces as they drove back to the McAllen airport. So they flew back to Houston, and he didn't see Harrelson for seven or eight days. They didn't talk to each other. So the defense tries to call a mistrial because they feel that Watkins' statement is not correct and is not credible because his past history of being an ex-convict, and he was selling guns across the border, so they feel like... He's not credible. And that was, of course, denied. So Foreman, on cross-examination of Watkins, he reminds the jury that he's an ex-convict, asked Watkins about his expertise on machine guns, rifle parts, and you may have told me what this, Mauser rifles? Mauser rifles, bolt-action rifles. Hunting rifles. And exportation of such weapons to Cuba, Mexico, and Canada. So the DA objects to the questioning, and Judge Alamia ordered the jury to leave the courtroom as well as spectators and newsmen also had to leave. The judge basically tells them, I'm going to allow him to answer these questions because Watkins is an expert at guns so if anyone can tell us what kind of gun he used and how he took it apart and what it looked like all of that would be helpful in the aid of finding these pieces of gun if we haven't already found them so he allows it which kind of makes the DA a little upset yeah because he feels like this is my witness they don't need to know that he's an expert. I'm trying to discredit him, and you're you're making him look valuable in the eyes of the jury. Oh, so the more we go through episodes, the more I, like, I realize that like the courtroom is a mud slinging feud. It is, it, and like the the best person to sling the mud wins. Yeah, it's not even a matter of really who did it; it's who can prove it or not. Yeah, yeah. Foreman doesn't even have substantial evidence of this alleged affair that happened, mm-hmm. but he's going to throw shade and be salty to try and get the jurors to let him win. You know, plant as much doubt in their mind as possible. Mm-hmm. So the judge allows it, which then makes the DA upset because now he's afraid the jury's going to think, well, this is another ex-convict. He is not credible. So then that gives them doubt and then mm-hmm. can make them lose. So the next person to take the stand was... Virgil Wilson, he was the funeral home operator. I thought his testimony was important because he stated the body was in such an advanced stage of decomposition, the only way he could identify the body was by dental records. And he was only there for a week. Mm. So what Foreman was trying to say is that if Harrelson did do it, the way the timeline fell with Watkins, then he would have been dead nine days, not seven days. So he's trying to say that the body was so decomposed, it had it, there's no way it could have been Harrelson because he was only there seven days ago, and this body was so decomposed, it had to be past seven days, even though it was Texas and he was in a shack. But Foreman isn't an Emmy, so he, no. who is, he doesn't know. He doesn't know, but he's just you know right. doing whatever, pulling whatever straws he can. Mm-hmm. Next, in Hidalgo County. Oh my god! Every time I hear it now, he's Hidalgo. <laughs> he's Hidalgo. Hidalgo. Yeah, you can't be a hit. You say it so what? Hidalgo? Hidalgo. Hidalgo. A county employee takes a stand, <laughs> stating he found pieces of the twenty-five caliber pistol frame 
on January 14th of 1969 on a dirt road south of McAllen, which was along the road towards the McAllen airport from the shack. Yeah, so it just makes, it. makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. He told the DA that the weapon frame was found about 10 days after searching the area after they found Degelia. And the frame was found on the dirt road where Jerry Watkins had said he had disassembled the weapon and threw it away a few minutes after killing Degelia. So Foreman decides he's, you know, he's really good at theories and he tries to make up things that may have happened. Bullshit! So, so he starts saying that Watkins, Harrelson, and Degelia were all three involved in a $100,000 dealing to sell machine guns to Cuba and Mexico because that's Watkins' past mm-hmm. and that they all three got in a fight and Degelia was shot. And what year was this? 1970. So that's like the height of the... <clears throat> Cuban Missile Crisis and all yep. that stuff. So are like, hey, the worst enemies of the U.S., you were giving them guns, weren't you, yeah. son of a mm-hmm. bitch? Yep, trying to make everybody hate him. Mm-hmm. So he tells the jury, I'm going to prove that Watkins is the biggest liar that ever testified in county court. And Watkins is asked to get back on the stand because they want foreman to ask him point blank were you involved in any kind of gun selling and the da wants his turn to ask him Mm -hmm. so watkins gets back on the stand and of course he says no that never happened because if that was the case i'd be a lot richer and i'm not and you would have found a lot more guns than 125 caliber pistol and pieces along a road he denied that the reason he and harrelson went to mcallen was for the supposed gun deal. He said, no, he asked me to go. It was an impromptu trip. Nothing to do with guns. So Foreman found discrepancies in Watkins' testimony. Previous, Watkins said he had not been convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor involving anything to do with guns or anything to do with foreign trade. So Foreman shows the records uh, from a Houston court showing that Watkins was convicted in December of 1966 on a charge of passing a worthless check. Worthless. So Watkins wasn't lying mm-hmm. because, I mean, he was lying. But according to the jury, he wasn't lying because that's not what he was in trouble for. Then they call the next witness, which was John Simmons. He was the manager of National Car Rental of McAllen, testified that Watkins rented a car from his agency about 10.45 a.m. the day of the slaying and returned it about 7 p.m. the same day with 139 miles driven. And the route that Watkins said that they took was 138 and a half miles. So what does that tell you? He was lying. That he was telling the truth? That he was telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And Watkins testified that the rental car was blue, but whenever John Simons talked about the car, he said the car was off-white. So Foreman says, well, obviously Watkins is a liar because the car color didn't match, which is really not a big deal. I mean, how does how does that... I mean, you rent a car and you're in it for how long? Eight hours. I mean, unless you've rented so many cars, you can't keep track of them like maybe Maybe previously he'd rented a white one or something or maybe the interior was white i don't know seems a little bit sketch but the mileage matches up so yeah well and then the only three fingerprints that were in the vehicle when they tested it was harrelson watkins and degelia okay so there's proof that degelia was in the car Mm -hmm. there's no blood but there shouldn't be because he shot him outside so pete scamardo gets to get on the stand and plead for his life. And he stated he never received any money as a result of Degelia's death. So Pete does testify that he did have two $25,000 life insurance policies on Degelia, and that was because they were business partners. And he thought if something ever happens to him, I want to be able 
to pay off debt or at least stay above water until I can either find a new partner or I can make more business. So what's the harm in getting a life insurance policy on your business partner? Did the other business partners get life insurance policies on each other or was it just him? It seems like if they all did it, it would be legit. But if Mm -hmm. only one person does it, it's suspicious. Well, Degelia had a lot of money. So I don't think he would have been as worried about if something happened to Pete than Pete being worried about something. Because, you know, Degelia was a grain dealer. He had a cotton business. He came from a long line of grain dealing. So he had a lot of inheritance. And so he had a lot of money. He got the life insurance policy on himself or someone got it for him? Well, he had one on himself that was his wife was a beneficiary, right? She Mm -hmm. got a hundred grand. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know if he knew about the life insurance policy that Pete had on him. But Pete only had it for businesses. So when Degelia died, those two life insurance policies were paid out, but not to him. Oh. They were paid straight to the debts of Hearn Bank, which was his debt for the loan for the business. That's not as sketchy then. A motive to say that Pete did it for life insurance money doesn't make sense because he wasn't considered the beneficiary. He made it so that the company company would get the money so that he wouldn't be in debt. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if they were business partners, he would have had to carry the debt. Exactly. So it indirectly went to him. So next they talked to Ranger Dawson. He was one of the ones that processed the pieces of the pistol that was found on the road. He testified that he took the pieces of the weapon to the Texas Department of Public Safety Firearms Lab and Ballistics in Austin, Texas. He was not allowed to testify about the results. Hmm. Ranger Dawson did question Scamardo about the gun. Well, Foreman requested any statements Scamardo made to be taken out since Dawson did not want him... Sexually? (laughs) Because when Dawson arrested him and was part of that situation, he didn't read him his rights. So Foreman felt like anything that was said was said illegally because he didn't Mm -hmm. Mirandize him. Right. Scamardo told the court he had gone to the police station and gave himself up because he was told by Ranger Dawson that he would be arrested and put in jail if he didn't. So he said, I went there voluntarily, even after I was arrested and let go initially. I told him everything because I thought I was going to be in jail anyway. So I might as well tell him what's going on. He was not aware any time that he could leave. So they never told him, you know, you have the right to remain silent or you don't have to speak to us. There's the door. You can leave. He, He felt once he was there, he had to stay. Until they told him he could leave. Fred Reimer, who was the head of DPS, was subpoenaed, but he did not appear. He sent Charles Bradley, another employee, to fill in for him. Well, the problem with this was that Fred Reimer was the one that processed the weapon pieces that came to show what they were, fingerprints and all that. Well, Charles Bradley was just an employee of his. So when Charles Bradley got on the stand, he starts telling the DA and foreman that he didn't actually deal with those pieces. His boss did, but he couldn't make it. They're like, none of your testimony matters because you have secondhand information. You can't interpret. You are not a witness. Yes, you work there, but you didn't specifically touch and process these items. So they basically tell him like, stop right there. Shouldn't they know better than that than to send him? It's not like you're... Well, what doesn't make sense is when they called the next witness... They didn't call Charles Bradley. They called Fred Reimer, but he got on the stand. So that doesn't make sense. And then 
Fred Reimer, like you're subpoenaed. You have to go to court. Mm -hmm. If you fail, you go to jail. So as they're giving him the pieces of the gun to show him, was this found? He said, oh, yes, you know, this was found. A blank shell was found. And this is definitely from a 25 caliber weapon because the DA argues that though he may not have processed it, his knowledge of knowing what a 25 caliber pistol looks like, what the pieces look like, can we at least ask him that? So the judge allows that. Right. But then he says afterwards that he has to be put in as a witness and this is completely backwards and the judge is very frustrated because right. this is not how it's supposed to be done. So the jury's very confused. The jurors are shaking their head and they're asking it's if they can have a recess. Can they have a break? Because they're so lost. And they're told no. They have to just sit there and listen. Go fuck yourself. That's what they said. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly what they said. <laughs> so Foreman goes to the judge and asks to speak to him in chambers. Foreman and Sharp, which were Harrelson and DeGellia's lawyers, mm-hmm. and the DA speak with the judge. So they let the jury go out. And they argue with Judge Alamia for three and a half hours. What? Because they want this guy's testimony to be part of it. Foreman does not. Because he's like, he wasn't even there. And the DA is like, but he has expert testimony on what a gun looks like. And then there's another person, the man that gave Scamardo a lie detector test. So because the lie detector test is inadmissible, the person that gave him the lie detector test, because Scamardo told him that this is what happened, that he was part of a murder for hire plot, since he told him that, even though it was during a lie detector test, the DA feels like he should be able to get on the stand and say... Scamardo told, told me, me. Yeah. that he was a murder for hire. How he told him doesn't matter. He told him, and whether he was lying or not, whether it was during a test, doesn't matter. But Foreman argues, well, how do we present this witness? How do we present how he knows how Why he knows Scamardo? Why can't it was during a... It's not like... Well, I guess because the test itself is what is inadmissible, not what he said during it. Right. And he's not saying whether it was true or false. He's just stating... This is what I happened. was in a room... With Scamardo, Scamardo told me he was part of a murder-for-hire plot to kill Degelia for life insurance money. That's it. That's all he has to say. So they fight for three hours, and the judge rules that there's no reason for him to be on the stand. He says, whenever you introduce someone, you always have to say how that person is connected to the trial. Mm-hmm. So if they just say, he's just a person that Scamardo spoke to, because he's not his friend, he's not an acquaintance, he's not a business partner, he's not a relative... How do you present that? So, and he may slip. What if they ask him, what do you do for a living? Mm -hmm. Oh, I get polygraph tests. Oh, did you give him one? Even though the two attorneys are not supposed to be talking about it. So just to prevent all of that, the judge denies it. So the last witness. So Foreman gets his way. Foreman gets his way, even though he has these awful theories. So the next witness, which was one that we spoke about, Miss Sandra Sue Attaway. Mm -hmm. She's the next to last state witness. Jury was not able to hear her testimony. She was twice divorced and the mother of an eight-year-old boy. She was Harrelson's common-law wife, and she was not allowed to testify in a case where Harrelson was principal because they were considered common-law married, and she could not testify against him. So she now lives in L.A., and she's a secretary. She testified she met Harrelson in August of 1967, which was a month after she had divorced a Mr. Earl Attaway. She stated that her and Harrelson dated for a brief time and moved to California to be roommates. Uh Uh-huh. She said they shared the same bed and had sexual relations, or like Russell likes to say, a sexual encounter. Ew. Ew. For, Ew. 
for about a year, and then she said she left Harrelson in Reno, Nevada in December of 1968. Harrelson began using names like Charles, quote-unquote Chuck Stoutenborough, which was the name he used in this situation with Degelia. She stated that he told her, I use this name because I have bad credit. So I have this other person's name so I can get credit cards and get what I need because my credit shot. He obtained two store cards and six gasoline cards. He introduced her as a relative, sometimes his wife and sometimes a fiance. She used many of the credit cards too under a Susanna Stoutenborough. So she used an alias as well. She did. And she did not agree to marry Harrelson or live as his wife even though he bought her a wedding ring. And she went by Suzanne Stoutenborough which would mean they had the same last name. So though you may have not agreed to marry him, you wore a ring and you took his fake last name. Well, And, and you, you lived, lived with together him. long enough for people to consider you common law married. So She stated that he beat her up really bad one time, breaking one of her ribs, cutting her face, and blackening her eye with his violent temper. So that's one reason why she wouldn't marry him. That's just one. Pretty important one, though. After one beating, she left and went to Las Vegas with another man, whom wasn't named. Oh. She stated Harrelson told her he killed Degelia so that Pete Scamardo could collect his insurance money. He told her he had done away with Degelia and disassembled the alleged murder weapon and threw it away on a lonely road near McAllen. And he agreed to do the murder because he said he owed Scamardo a favor. And he doesn't like owing people. So after a six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for 12 hours for a week. 12 hours? What do you think Pete Scamardo's fate is? Hmm. I think they found him guilty. He was found guilty Mm -hmm. of accomplice to murder. And he was given seven years in prison. And as they read his sentencing, he yelled, I didn't do it, when they read the guilty verdict. But the jury couldn't reach a verdict for Harrelson. So they moved it to Houston and was put on a wait list. So Harrelson's moved to the Houston jail and he's just on a wait list. So when they get to him, they get to him. But the crazy part is, is during this time, he hasn't been convicted of anything. So for two years, he's been in jail. Mm -hmm. And I mean, technically, he's not completely innocent. He had other charges. But because he was wanted in this until they either found enough to keep him or let him go, they didn't have enough to say, okay, you're completely innocent, but we don't have enough to charge you. But you do have these other things you did. So you have a couple years that we have to get our shit together. So he's in jail. So they start a pre-trial in 1973. So for three years, he's in jail Damn. on a wait list in Houston. Foreman refused to represent Harrelson. Uh-oh. So after the first trial, he's like, uh-uh. Mm-mm. Nope. Harrelson entered the courtroom upset about not been giving a haircut while he was in the county jail. And he was afraid that if people saw him with this long hair, that they would associate him as a bad person because crime was associated with people with long hair. Well, and remember whenever they arrested him in Atlanta, what was the one thing he wanted to bring from his apartment? Remember? Was it a comb? Yeah. So he wanted, he said he kept asking for a haircut and they wouldn't. So he told the judge, my rights were violated. I was not given the best care in this county jail that I've been at for the last three years waiting for you folks to uh try this is a subpar jail is what he's saying basically (laughs) so the judge is like yeah it's too bad sorry sorry for your luck chuck again go fuck yourself (laughs) so trial was pushed out another six months number one he can't find an attorney then when he does find an attorney he hires an ex-legislator which is illegal in the state of texas Harrelson knows this because he's done this two other times in the past where he finds an attorney that is either retired or he finds legislators that have history of being an attorney and asks them to represent him. Better call Saul. And during this time, which I'm not sure how the process is now, but if he sought out an attorney, it's not like he picked up the phone and called him. He tells the judge, I have an attorney. His name is 
John Smith. The attorney, the judge then reaches out to the attorney and says, you are now going to defend this person. And the judge says, oh, hell no, I'm not. I can't. It's illegal. I'm a legislator. And the judge is like, fuck again. This so, guy. So he, and he did that on purpose. Yeah, he's just stalling. So he's pretty smart, though. Yeah, he is. So in June of 1973, Harrelson requests for Judge Hester to be removed from his murder trial. That's about to happen. Due to releasing prejudicial information to the news media and jeopardizing his chance of a fair trial. He has been held in jail since November of 1968. So it's been almost five years and he has not been convicted of a crime except for the small misdemeanors that he did get in trouble for. But through a series of mistrials and legal maneuvers, he's been able to push this on further and further. So finally in July, he has a trial. In August, a call girl named Mrs. Gannon testified at both trials that she was having dinner with him during the time DeGelio was shot. Oh, what's, uh... What's dinner code for, huh? Well, (laughs) as she's speaking, the judge tells her to get off the stand because he feels that she's strung out, she's drunk, and most likely someone has paid her. Someone paid her, and Harrelson got to her somehow. So he tells her to leave. Maybe a conjugal visit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was found in contempt and sent to jail for perjury on a $3,000 bond. So the same trial that happened for DeGelia, same witnesses, everything happens again for him. So I didn't really go too much into that because it was the same. So on August the 10th, 1973, he is found guilty. He's sentenced to 15 years, which he served five years and released on good behavior in 1978. So even though he had been in there for five years already, he stayed another five years. They felt like you've been in here 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he probably was a model prisoner because he was smart. And a little bit sexy, right? Mm. Yeah. Model prisoner. Jesus Christ. Oh, another dad joke. <laughs> so that's what happened to Pete Scamardo and... Charles Harrelson with Sam DeGelia. This guy, I swear. He's a slithery snake. So give us a recap on okay. your guy, Alan Berg. So Alan Berg, he and his father owned Imperial Carpet. He was murdered in May, end of May of 1968, but they didn't find him until November. Remember, they found him on, oh, that's um, right. on the beach. Yes, very bold. Or not on the beach. In a clump of trees close to the beach between Surfside and a place called San Luis Pass. So, and I've been to all those areas. So it sucks when I read this because I can mentally see all these places. It sucks. Remember they go and they find Miss Susan Sandra Attaway. She's the state star witness because she has firsthand information that Charles Harrelson killed Burke along with a couple of other people, she said. So Mm -hmm. she was a, she may be a salty one too. Yeah, so when you were talking about their relationship and when she left him, the timeline does not line up with what I have here. She had way more than like one or two boyfriends. She jumped from man to man to man to man. Dang. A oh, dingle hopper. Ding- yeah. <laughs> A dingle hopper. Even though they arrested Charles, he swears he's innocent. He keeps saying, I'm innocent. I, I didn't do this. And of course, they're already saying they're going to ask for the death penalty. They arrest Charles in November of 68. He's in jail. They're trying to, um, they have a hard time getting a jury. And of course, uh, Charles is doing his same stall techniques. So finally, in April of 1970, Charles has been in jail. They've been trying to get juries, get all this stuff set up. They find uh, another person is issued a warrant in connection with the murder. His name is Frank Joseph DeMaria. He is the president of Decorative Homes Incorporated, and he's charged for being an accomplice. This information came out from a witness in the Scamardo trial. Wow. Yes. And you know, it's bad enough. I mean, Harrelson's obviously a bad person as it is, but 
then he drags other people down mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to go and kill people and be a hitman, like, why can't you just do it yourself? Why do yeah. you have to get other people's hands dirty, too? Like, I've seen plenty of hitman movies. They do it all by themselves. Yeah, they don't have wives. They don't yeah. have anything. That's how they get away with it. Because yeah. they're they, they're solo. They just do it on their own. In and out, and you're done, right? Mm-hmm. So they finally set it. The trial is set for July 27th. A few days before the trial, Harrelson has three attorneys for this one, okay? So they approached the judge, who in this case was Judge Hardy. Foreman? Foreman is one of them. Oh, my God. No wonder Foreman was done with this. Yes, he is one of them. And that's when, whenever you were saying how he's salty, he is consistent. Because some of the stuff I wrote in here just cracked me up what he did. So they ask for six new defense pleas before he goes to trial. The first one is a motion for discovery, which forces the prosecution to reveal evidence against the defendant. A motion to release Harrelson on his own recognizance. Because he's innocent. Recognizance. Recognance. To just release him on his own. <laughs> yeah, recognizance. At least she didn't say recognize. Recognize. Or cheering. Don't make me say recognize my cheering. Because <laughs> they done stole my heart. They done stole <laughs> I'll just have to create a whole sentence for that. A motion to have the prosecution provide a list of state witnesses. A motion to prohibit the state from seeking the death penalty. They don't want that. A motion to produce evidence consistent with the guilt of the defendant. And this one I was a little confused about. I even looked it up. But a motion to restrict the right of the state to preemptory challenge of those prospective jurors who have scruples in regard to the infliction of the punishment of death in any crime. So isn't that the same as the people being against or for the death penalty? Yeah, that just sounds like a drawn out yeah. bunch of words way so to say they it. want they don't want people who are pro-death penalty. They want people who are against it. That's what it sounds like. But I don't think you can do that. You can't be biased you can't say i only want people who are against the death penalty don't yes, you have yes, to you have can. that's why oh yeah jury selections. you're right so i guess they're make, making double sure anyway. so if they're going after the death penalty why would they choose a jury that was against it the defense did it was the defense yeah because it's foreman and he is defending harrelson so what it's like like i said it's just a big mudslinging yeah contest. it's like you, just, you can just angle it the way you whatever want whatever they yeah. can do to who can tell a better confuse, story yeah exactly manipulate a better story yeah mm-hmm. well yeah i mean look what he did with the degelia putting doubt in the minds that his wife was having an affair with his cousin whore over here and hypothetically guys i mean come on i have absolutely no proof but she did it <laughs> <laughs> you know and not only was she having an affair with him, but also Degelio was having an affair with some Louisiana man's wife. Like, who does that? This guy. I mean, it worked. <laughs> this fucking guy. Yeah, it didn't work because he. They well, got. They got. Eventually, they got guilty. They got. Yeah, don't be ruining it for gone. everybody. We don't know. I was just talking he about did it. the Pete Scamardo case I just finished. So the district attorney Bass protested all the motions on the grounds that he had not had enough time to study all of them. But Judge Hardy agreed to hear the arguments on the motions. Foreman said he had no objection to a continuance if the DA needed additional time. Look how accommodating he is. The trial has been reset a number of times, including two postponements. (laughs) Why did that sound so bad? Two postponements. (laughs) Two postponements. Well, isn't it postpone? And she said postpone. Postponement. I said postponement. (laughs) Postponements. What the fuck? (laughs) Did I say it wrong? I don't know. Now I question it. I don't fucking know anymore. It sounded like you said postpone. He got two postponements. (laughs) No, I heard postponement. He got two post Malones. (laughs) Okay. 
Foreman said it was common practice to file motions of this nature on the day of the trial. This is him saying, we did not have to file these until Monday, but we filed them today in the interest of speeding the case to trial. Of course, the DA is glad to hear that. The DA said he was pleased to see that Mr. Foreman is interested in speed. The attorney did not like that. And he said, I would like for the court to advise Mr. Bass to refrain from these sidebar remarks. All right, then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Judge Hardy advised both attorneys to refrain from making personal remarks and to confine their remarks to the case. Prior to the hearing, Judge Hardy met with six members of the news media to set forth suggestions for coverage of the trial. He said he wanted to see each of them get along and honor the First and Fifth Amendments. You know, you're the press, usually you're a big problem, so be careful in what you release, especially knowing that it could get out to the jury. A few days later, Harrelson, so Foreman tries to block the state from seeking death penalty. He will not let it go. He claimed the state never Never notified Harrelson's attorneys that the death penalty was being sought, which we know was bullshit because he filed a motion, right? Well, and as an attorney and your your defendant is you on trial for murder, option. you know you're in Texas. We do it. Yeah. So exactly. it can happen. That's Don't like be saying, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. What? Exactly. I'm an attorney. The trial's starting. You Come talking on. about death? Like he could be found guilty? Yeah. Wait a second. But I'm his attorney. I have, I have work I have to do. I have to read papers and shit. The DA reminds him that they were present in the pretrial hearing when the state made its intentions very well known. Because he said in the beginning, I'm going to seek the death penalty for this guy. Mid-August, the trial is finally starting. So our very first star witness is Susan Attaway, right? We've already talked about her. She, the only way she would testify is if she was granted immunity from prosecution. Otherwise, she wasn't going to testify at all. Hmm. So they gave it to her. But Foreman made sure that the jury knew that. He wanted the jury to know that she was only going to testify because she wanted immunity. She basically tells a story. She said that Harrelson made her talk to Berg on the phone and to tell him that she was interested in him and asked where he would be that night. He told her he would be at the brass jug. (laughs) The brass jug. That brass jug. I don't, I think that there's something more to that. I think that place is not... Upscale? I maybe I it is upscale that. for that type of situation, right? You know, it's, it's you don't. Ah, uh, man, I don't. You know. don't have a posh bar called the Brass Jug. Hey guys, we're going to the Penis Boots. You ready to go? Maybe it had. <laughs> maybe it was Brass Jugs, but the S and the neon letters was just off, <laughs> so it just said Brass Jug. It was flashing. <laughs> Sometimes we have jugs, but normally we just have a jug. We just have a jug. Okay, so then she proceeds to tell the story. She said she drove with Harrelson to the brass jug, and when Harrelson saw Alan get out of his car, he rushed over to him, put a gun to his side, made him get in the car, and lie on the floorboard. That's very familiar, is it not? Very familiar. Okay. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, she said they drove for a long time, finally ending up on a deserted road in an area with trees around. Um, Harrelson told Alan to get out of the car. She said, I thought Harrelson was just going to beat him up, so I stayed in the car as I knew how that would feel. I didn't really understand what that meant until you said... I mean, I understood, but it seemed a little out of context, but I guess if she's been beat up by him before, she understands. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said she decided to get out of the car and saw a Harrelson standing over Alan with a gun in his hand. She said he told me to get back in the car. Then he began dragging Alan down an incline. A few minutes later, he called her out. He couldn't find the the water. He was looking for the beach or some water to leave him in. He couldn't find any. So he told her he was going to have to bury the body. She said she heard a gurgling noise and Harrelson told her that Alan wasn't dead yet and he was going to have to strangle him. 
Oh God. When well, he can't shoot him again. Or... I know. Like, oh, man, this, this is gun her story. just didn't do the job. I better this do this damn, barehanded. This damn faulty dis- like, dismembered did gun. <laughs> did he not bring enough bullets <laughs> with him? Hey, I'm going in bareback, guys. Here we go. What the hell? I'm a really good shot, so I'll just take one bullet with me. Yeah. Barney five. No shit. <laughs> Sister takes unloaded guns places so shut up that's okay i went hunting one time it wasn't on purpose. all my fucking guns okay well not as good yeah. not i as... got to the other side of fort worth i was like huh i don't have a single fucking gun in this truck <laughs> but he did have enough bullets to almost blow himself up so see you had bullets and no gun and i had a gun and no bullets <laughs> no he's driving he's driving along right he's smoking and he goes to flick his cigarette out he has a seven up between his legs yep. he goes to flick the cigarette out and it flies Back in the back of the oh, car, shit. where all no, the bullets are. No, not in the back of the car. Down here, where, where the, the driver's side are. little bullshit little thing. Like, I had that pack with 30-06 ammo. It went down in there, and not only did that happen, when I flicked it out, a bunch of fucking ash got in my eyes. So all this red <laughs> so embers, I'm like, fuck! You're like, ah, try not to wreck. I go ballistic with that 7-Up, and I start fucking throwing it everywhere. That's <laughs> yeah. when he had the Pacifico. He was like, honey, I love you. I'm like, oh, I love you too. He's like, I almost died. <laughs> I almost ran myself off the road and blew myself and my, up. All of my eyes are burnt. It was a. Fu- it was like something out of a fucking movie. Like it three was like seconds. The uh, uh, planes, trains, and <laughs> exactly. He's trying to take a jacket off, and he's like, "Oh my god!" Then it's stuck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She heard the gurgling noise. He told her Alan wasn't dead yet, and he was going to have to strangle him. He pulled him back up the incline with a rope around his neck, wrapped the body in a quilt, and they put him in the trunk. So what that policeman found is exactly what he did. So he put the rope around his neck and dragged him. Yeah, so that because he think... I guess he was too heavy. He didn't want to have to drag him back up. Well, and I guess also that may it also would also help, help strangle, strangle him. him. So if it's not terrible. bad enough that you shot the guy, and no he's in, shit, he's dying, and then you drag him by his neck. She said they next drove over the high bridge leading to Surfside, which I've been on that bridge so many times. So now if I ever go back, I'm gonna be like. This is a bridge. So they passed all the houses. They found a bushy area. Harrelson yanked the body out of the car, dragged it across a ditch, and left it hidden in some high weeds. He then threw the quilt to the right of the body and returned to the car with Alan's expensive watch. So he stole his watch. She said that Harrison told her they needed the watch to show Frank Demaria that he had completed the job to get his $2,000 for the killing. Two grand is all they paid him to kill Can someone? That? Now, this was in 70, right? So I don't know what two grand is the equivalent of now. But anyway, it's still, that's what he paid him or that's what he agreed to. Uh, she said that Harrison then threw the gun out of the car as they were crossing uh, Galveston Bay on the way to Houston, which is another similar situation. She said the next day um, he showed her a wad of bills, 1500 that he collected for the killing and commented that Demaria still owed him 500 bucks. She said we were broke the day before, so she knew that that's where the money came from. She also told the jury that she had been living with Harrelson beginning late August of 1967. It, that's kind of what you said too, right? Does that line up? Yes, she okay. said that they, yeah. Mm-hmm. I okay. also find it highly disturbing and kind of weird that like you hire somebody to kill a motherfucker and then you like, you short him. Like, hey, yeah. I'll catch you on the flip, bro. No shit. Like, I only have 1,500. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Yeah. But I also feel like Giving him his watch doesn't really prove that he killed him. I agree. You know? But like, how do you... What did you want? Uh, like, he could have been like, hey, excuse me. Here's his face. How about his... 
Connors' face. <laughs> I mean, take a camera, take a picture. You're a hitman. You're supposed to be a fucking professional, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Supposedly. So she said they met in August of 67 and they traveled to numerous cities across the country within a period of less than a year. She said he told her his occupation was to collect gambling debts. Foreman didn't want Attaway to be able to testify because she was his common law wife. Mm -hmm. He asked that it be part of the record and every single question that they asked her, he kept objecting because (laughs) they were common law married. (laughs) He also told the jury that Attaway was presently living with the man who found Berg's body. Because there were there was the private detective and there was another guy, that Weedock guy, who was mm-hmm. the one that called in, remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's who she was living with at the time. Uh. Yeah. In the beginning of her testimony, she refused to state where she lived, saying that that's what her counsel told her to do, not to say. But Foreman made sure that he got that out there, that, hey, ask her, ask her who she's living with. <laughs> He sounds like a scumbag, but I would want him to defend me. Yeah. I mean, he's really good at picking holes in your bullshit. Like, if right. you're bullshitting, he's going to be able to he's tell. Gonna he's going to pick at right it. Back. Yeah. And before he took the Harrelson and um, Scamardo case, he had only, out of over a couple hundred murder trials, he only lost one to the electric chair. So he walked in knowing that, like, he knew exactly what he was doing, but Scamardo was the second one he lost. So Foreman claims that there were at least 20 people who had a motive to kill Alan. He said Alan had ex-cons working for him at the carpet place. Some of them were convicted murderers. The ex-cons were salesmen. And 11 of them complained of being cheated on their commissions during the eight months before Alan was killed. He also said a customer who felt he had been cheated threatened Berg within 48 hours of his death. Berg was a gambler and he had bet and lost in Las Vegas with someone else's money. Remember, we talked about that. It was like um, 109 grand. Did you say that he, that Foreman stated that he could prove that 20 people had a reason to kill him? He said the same exact thing. No shit. Yeah. Earlier I'd said he stated in the Degelia case, I will prove that 20 to 30 people had a reasonable right to kill Sam Degelia. And I have at least 20 hypotheses of possibilities. This is exactly the same thing. This dude, I told you, if nothing else, he's consistent, right? More people testifying. We have the private detective that Alan's family hired. His name is Robert Leonard. He he testifies that he overheard conversations that Alan had numerous gambling losses, which isn't a secret at this point. He said one of the losses amounted to 30 grand. He overheard a conversation where Alan's name was mentioned in connection with an FBI investigation into interstate gambling. Another conversation between Alan's dad and Fred Harrison stated that Alan refused to pay a lost horse race bet. Harrison's occupation is that of a bookie and he said that Alan failed to pay a $600 horse racing bet. Leonard also testified that insurance policies on Alan's life amounted to over $100,000. But I think it's similar to the other situation where he owned a business, he had a family, he had children, so that's not really, I don't think that's suspicious, but Foreman made sure to mention it. I think the only time it becomes suspicious is when you look at who the beneficiary is. That's what makes it suspicious, in my opinion. I think it was his wife. So the next witness is a friend of Harrelson's. His name is Crawford Booth. He testified that um, Harrelson borrowed a shovel, and then he came to bring it back a couple of days after Alan was killed. So he went to the car to get the shovel, and Booth said he spotted what could have been blood in Harrelson's car. He said the date of the visit was fixed in his mind because Harrelson 
and ask him if he wanted to go watch the Indy 500 race on closed circuit television at a Houston movie house. <laughs> the Texas Ranger took the shovel. They were going to process it. Okay, so this I thought this was really funny. This is a couple days later. Foreman kept a Texas Ranger on cross-examination all day. Oh my God. All day long. To pick holes in the state's case, Ranger Rundell of Waco admitted to Foreman that the hairs he collected from a shirt believed to belong to the victim did not match a hair found on blood that was allegedly Allen's. So I guess if he kept them on the stand long enough, they either got nervous or maybe they were, I think he could just sniff out bullshit. But keeping them all day long... Well, if you ask the same question over and over again, but in different ways, you will get the answer you're looking for. Fair enough. And I think also he's just trying to give the jury doubt. Yes. As long as he can make them feel doubt. Even if he's just planting a tiny seed of doubt, it's enough. With every single witness that the state presents, if he can give a little bit of doubt on every one, his risk of winning is Mm -hmm. Well, then no one one is as credible as they... Risk of winning. His (laughs) likelihood of winning... It's a lot higher. Winning is risky. Mm-hmm. Sure. So early September, Alan's father testified that when the family obtained a $50,000 loan to organize two firms, a large insurance policy was taken out on Alan's life. He testified that after his son's body was found on Surfside Beach, the finance company granting the loan was paid $45,000 of the insurance money. And an additional three grand went to the company. So it sounds like half of the insurance policy is already spent at this point, right? And that's the same thing that happened with Tegelia, which I didn't know. I don't know maybe if it's different now, but I didn't know that when you died... If you owed money, it went there first. Because, I mean, we've had, unfortunately, we've had people pass away in our life that were somewhat young. But these people, like, there was no option. It went straight to the debt. Maybe, well, no, they were in Texas. Because I know Texas is not a debtor state. So we... It depends on the type of... These must have been insurance. Like, that one that you talked about and this one must have been insurance claims that were business related. Because in both of these situations... These people had their own companies. So for me, I don't own a company. So when I, my kids have to take my insurance, they'll, if I have any debt, it'll be car loans or house or whatever. It won't be business. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to. Well, no, but do you want to worry the rest of your life about all the phone calls and somebody showing up and are they going to repossess your shit? Like it's not worth it. Not in Texas, they can't. I don't know. Because we never say never. I don't know the law well enough to say. I know that we live in a, Texas is not a debtor state. So whenever you, because believe me, I have a lot of credit card debt. (laughs) (laughs) And I've had credit cards I didn't pay. Like when dad got sick, I let them all default because I didn't have a choice. And they would call me from other states and they'd say, we're going to get your check. I'm like, no, you're not. I live in Texas. And they stopped calling because certain states, they will garnish your wages if you don't pay your Capital One bill. But Texas is not a debtor state. So they cannot take, the only people that can take your check in Texas is the IRS IRS and the government for student loans. That's it. So Foreman and Alan's dad, they clashed. They did not get along. During the trial, it was bad. And Berg, most of the time, was usually composed, but he became visibly upset when Foreman asked him, about his son's early business ventures. And this is Foreman quoting. He's asking, Mr. Berg, wasn't it in Dallas where Allen Berg associated with a con man who gypped a widow out of 150 grand? Holy shit. You can actually say gypped back in those days. I know. I typed it because it was a quote. (laughs) Berg replied, would you mind rephrasing the question? (laughs) Foreman said, just answer the question. Sorry if we offended you, but we're quoting a salty ass attorney. Mm-hmm. So this is not my word. 
Mr. Burr goes on to say, My son was butchered once, and I don't think it's necessary to assassinate him again. At this point, um, Mr. Berg is almost in tears. Our salty attorney says, I'm just quoting your information to the Houston police. You're the one who's assassinating his character. Didn't you make that exact remark to Houston police? His dad says, yes, I said it, but it came out a year and a half later. So his dad actually did say that. Mm. Yeah. So maybe, I wonder if he was, I mean, I'm sure he missed well, his son, but was he also crying because he was shameful maybe. of what he said? Maybe. Maybe it's a lot of stuff. I don't know. But he did admit that he and his son yelled and screamed at each other from time to time and slammed phones in anger. And he denied claims that he and his son had angry words on the day of Alan's death. He said that he and his son received a weekly salary of $500 and that he himself had outside income from stocks and bonds. But then... Oh, the firm at that point still owed more than five grand in franchise taxes and only recently finished paying off several thousand dollars to the government for federal withholding taxes on the firm's employees. So I see. those kind of debts, you can't, yeah, it doesn't matter where you live. Yeah, no, yeah. if you do own a business and you owe money, you're yeah. going to have to pay that first. So that makes so, sense. So, yeah. Uh, his dad is still testifying a couple days later. I mean, he kept him on stand a long time. He says that one of their employees threatened Alan's life shortly before he disappeared. He states that he wasn't present when the threat occurred, but he was told by other employees at the carpet store. He threatened to kill Alan. He threw a carpet sample completely across the room when Alan told him he was fired. So Alan fired the guy and he was really, really pissed off. So the next day, our salty attorney, Foreman, asked for a mistrial after Alan's dad's testimony. But of course, the motion was denied. Did he say what his reason was? Um, He contends that it was one of the salesmen. And it wasn't Harrelson that killed Berg. He named each of the potential salesmen by name, one of which was Jim Motley. And he says, and I quote, And wasn't it Jim Motley who first told you that Alan had been killed by the mafia and his body run through a meat grinder? Mr. Berg said, yes, but Mr. Harrelson's brother told me I could buy a body for $1,000. <laughs> That's why Foreman asked for a mistrial. He was pissed. He turned to the judge and asked if the jury could be retired and asked the judge to declare a mistrial. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. I mean, and the other thing is that if that was the case that the salesman did it, he wasn't found in a meat grinder. His body wasn't grinded up. Well, but remember early on when they're talking about before they found him, his dad was saying they told us he was dead. They told us he was alive. So clearly they were getting stories from all over the place about Mm -hmm. what had happened to him. So, I mean, rumors, it would be, that could be credible if he said the mafia killed him and laid his body next to the water. Yeah. Then that could be a credible statement. Right. But people can say things, but if they don't match the evidence, they really don't matter. The next day we have another witness testifying for the prosecution. His name is L.J. Brulette. He is the owner of Morningside Club and Restaurant in Houston. He talked about an incident when Harrelson caught Attaway and Weedock together at the restaurant. Mm. That sounds a little more classier than the Iron Tits restaurant. (laughs) Right. Attaway, who said she lived with Harrelson, testified earlier that she did not meet Weedock until June of 68. Mm -hmm. But didn't she say that they were together until December of 68? Isn't that what she read? Yeah, so she stated that they got together in August of 67, Mm -hmm. and they were together until December of 68. She said she didn't meet Weedock until June, but Brulette said that Harrelson appeared at the door of the private club, the Morningside Club, 
in March or April of 1968. In Attaway and Weedock, we're in the restaurant together. He said, I wouldn't let Harrelson in because he wasn't a member of the club. But 15 minutes later, as I opened a locked door to let members in, Harrelson pushed his way into the club behind them. Weedock got up and ran out of the back door, but wasn't fast enough to escape before being kicked by Harrelson. Brulette said Harrelson jerked Attaway out of the club. So she lies. She is, she's a skank. There's also a transcript of a recorded telephone conversation which said Allen was killed by out-of-town mobsters that was introduced into evidence. The recorded conversation was between uh, Miss Jenna Coy Weedock, who was the ex-wife mm-hmm. of Attaway's new squeeze, and Stanley Levine, who was a former employee of the carpet place. The transcript stated that Berg was killed to make an example out of him for not paying $109,000 gambling debt. Allen's father testified that he asked Levine to make the call to Miss Weedock when he was searching for his son. Miss Weedock in the conversation said, some people are coming to town and there's some people that they want. She said a friend told her about Alan's death the week after he disappeared. Mm. A couple days later, we have three witnesses. One of them is a judge testifying that Charles Harrelson was with them at the time he was supposed to have abducted Allen Berg. Leon Price, a rancher, said he finished a deal to buy a horse from Harrelson at Good Dusk Dark. <laughs> I guess that's a technical term for when it's about dark in Texas. It falls into the same Good Dusk Dark. Meat um, grabbing, or what was it? Meat? Moonlighting meat or some shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Meat, meat moonlighters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love these old... <laughs> so that's a time now. Good dust dark. And they also had a bill of sale that was dated the same day, May 28, 1968. And it was signed by Harrelson and Leon Price. The judge notarized it. So Leon Price is the rancher. The judge is Judge J.V. Price. So it's Leon's brother. So he notarized it. So they're stating that he couldn't have killed him because he was with them. He was with them selling a horse. Okay. Um, I would like to mark this auspicious occasion (laughs) in this talk that we officially have 391 likes. Shut your face. Yes! So close to 400. We're going to break the 400 mark by tomorrow. What, what? This is so awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening and liking. Price also said that Harrelson would have faced at least a two-hour drive back to Houston after he sold the horse to Leon. And then Harrelson's father also testified that his son and Price came to his ranch and loaded the horse that day. So now we've got pretty compelling evidence that... There's no way he could have done it. He wasn't there. And a judge isn't going to lie. Mm-hmm. Well, you hope not. Well, hopefully not. So everybody rest. But this is this. Listen to this. An all-male jury deliberated for forty minutes and found Harrelson innocent. I mean, after that, forty minutes. Forty minutes. Most of Percy Foreman's five-hour and fifty-minute closing argument get almost six hours of closing argument. That's why they found him innocent to give the guy to shut yeah, up. That's why they'd only deliberated for 40 minutes. They were ready to get the hell out of there. Yeah. Most of his closing argument dealt with the reason why the jury should not believe Sandra Attaway, which was obviously their strongest witness, the state's strongest witness. He said she manufactured the story at the bidding of her new beau, 
her new boyfriend, Bernard Weedock, with whom she lives now. He said everything that she told on the stand came from Houston papers. Think about it. Think about everything that we read in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. The the cop that went to the scene. Mm -hmm. So everything that he said, she was able to say, well, this is what we did. We got in the car, we drug him here, we put a rope, we put him over here, we put the quilt over there. I mean, I believe papers. I believed her, unfortunately. I did too. I did too, damn it. Obviously, Harrelson says his faith in justice has been restored a great deal. It's been hell, but it's wonderful now. But I do have a confession that I need to make right now with this whole thing. I totally believe that he did it from the very beginning. So much so that when I was doing my research, I was, I busted myself only putting in pieces of the story that fit to him being guilty. Mm. Then when I got to the end of the trial and he was innocent, I was like, wait, what the hell? No way. I went back and filled in the gaps of of where the testimony that I didn't read, where he wasn't guilty. So this just shows you that we give you the full story. We do we give do you not the full story. Pick. No. So do you think he really is innocent? I think he's innocent. I mean, we so have, who do you think did it? I think he got. I think it was a mob hit. I mean, a hundred and let's figure out what is a hundred nine thousand dollars valued at today. Seven. $171,000. And it does make more sense too that if somebody's if somebody truly wants somebody dead, they're not they're not going to shorter your they're cash. They're just no. Right? I mean, yeah. you're going to get and most hitmen won't do the killing until they get the freaking money. At least half of it. Right. Or at um, least see all of it. And see Weedock is the one who when the so the family had a $5,000 reward once they raised it to 10 he called and remember he wanted to remain anonymous in the beginning. And then he said, Oh yeah, well I'll come and talk to you, but you have to fly me there, pay for me to have a hotel room. Mm -hmm. So then the private detective and we doc go and we doc tells them where the body is. They go get the body the next day. So that backs his ex-wife story of people rolled in, did the thing and rolled out. So I believe he's innocent. I, I, I think it was a mafia or mob hit. So though He, he had too many debts. So you think, or it was one of the pissed off people that he worked with. So you think she used the Degelia case and how he did that to make him look like he did this one? So we have one case where he was found guilty and we have one case where he was found innocent. Mm-hmm. Now we have another case bum, bum, bum. where a judge has been murdered. Oh, snap. And um, what year was this? This is May 29th of 1979. So if Harrelson is found guilty in doing this, and if he did do this, then he did this less than a year of being out of jail for the Degelia murder. So when did he get out of jail? He got out of jail in September of 1978. Okay. And this murder happened May of 1979. So that's nine months. Mm -hmm. So on May 29th of 1979, a attorney by the name of John Wood Jr., known as Maximum John... You know why he got the nickname Maximum John? He had big feet. Uh, No. Producer, do you have any guesses? John Plane. He was given the name Maximum John for giving maximum sentences for people. Like, he was just known as giving really, really long sentences. He was found shot in the lower back right outside of his townhome. He was... In what town? Oh, I'm sorry. San Antonio. Okay. So he was a very well-known judge. He was 63 whenever he was killed. Apparently, he had... Him and his wife had left the house to go to work, 
and he went to his car. He attempted to start it. It wouldn't come on. So he got out of the car to check the engine and he was shot. He was found lying face up. No weapon was found around him. He had one shot to the back with no exit wound. Policemen were seeking a man in his late 20s with curly hair driving a small red car. That's what some of the witnesses had stated. His wife, you know, had left with him, but had gone towards her own vehicle and had already left. But coincidentally, as she was pulling out of the neighborhood, she had a flat tire. So she got out and she was walking back towards the house when she heard the gunshot. One of the witnesses came running out when they heard the gunshot and they saw Miss Wood uh, hovering over her husband's body trying to help him. Mm -hmm. Um, And that where he was shot it shook the windows out of his car like though even though there was only one they thought there were multiple gunshots because in the driver window it was busted out so they felt that either it was but he was outside the car when they shot him right maybe maybe the maybe they busted the window or something that's weird okay yeah they just said the newspaper stated that the shot shook the windows out it was so loud that's that was the preliminary that would be the concussion from the shot. Okay. So Miss Wood became hysterical. She was taken to the hospital with Mr. Wood. Later she was quoted as saying, uh, well, I guess they finally got him. Because he's, oh, been, a, he's, he's a judge. been a judge for a maximum. So 30 yeah, you years. You can only be a he's dickhead got some for so enemies. long. Yeah. He had just been assigned protection by federal marshals since an assistant U.S. attorney had been shot in November. But he recently called off the protection, saying that he didn't feel like he needed him. He had recently told his landlady at his apartments that he felt his life was in danger, but he felt that he would be okay considering the circumstances. He had recently been presiding over drug cases developed in El Paso and West Texas cities by the U.S. attorney. One case was a professional gambler by the name of Jimmy Chagra, who is charged with federal drug violations, and Judge Wood was to preside over his trial due to start in July. In pre-trial, Chagra's lawyers uh, asked that Wood be removed from the trial, saying that he was biased because he had done so many cases with drug traffickers that he would just be biased, that he would just automatically assume that's what he was. Mm -hmm. And so he would give him a harsh sentence. But, I mean, all judges have certain cases that they do more often because they know the law the best there, right? So I don't really think that could be a reason to disqualify him, which obviously they didn't take him off because he was still set to be the judge for the trial. So three days later, they have Judge Wood's funeral and a thousand people attended. Wow. So they start trying to figure out what the motive is here. Um, They decide that motive is because of his reputation being tough on narcotics traffickers. And the FBI adds $25,000 to the $100,000 reward for information. They cannot determine the distance of the shot due to no residue of gunpowder on his suit or anywhere around him. So they're they're feeling like maybe this was a sniper situation. So they trying to figure out, obviously they're searching to figure out who could have done it, who recently he put behind bars. So they get all the witnesses around and they figure out that they have sketches on four men. All of them are white and they're in their 20s. So they find in July, so this is two months later, they find four men that are arrested after they had held up a bar and had a shootout with FBI agents just a few months prior to the slaying of the judge. So they bring them in. They think maybe they have something to do with them, and they're nothing. So six months later, we're in October of 1979, and Charles Harrelson is now subpoenaed for the murder of John Wood. The only evidence they have is that there's a young man with curly hair. That's it. he's not young. And he doesn't have curly hair. So he is subpoenaed to go in. He goes in, he talks to them, and they don't really have anything on him. 
So four months later, which is February of 1980, Harrelson is arrested on an unrelated charge of possessing illegal gambling equipment. When you hear illegal gambling equipment, what do you think of? Chickens for a cockfight. What do you think? Just a casino shit, like a blackjack table and roulette wheel and stuff like that. This motherfucker's got dice! (laughs) He had magnetized dice. Oh! Oh, Good job! Loaded dice. So he testified in October, previously, to the grand jury for nine hours about this murder. And he was released. So now he's arrested for this magnetized dice firearms that were found in his car. And they decide they're going to run ballistics on the guns to see if they're involved in the wood case. Uh-oh. So whenever they they get all the guns, they found seven guns in the vehicle with him. Which I don't think at this time, if you had been convicted of a murder at that time, if you could still own a gun, I think you were still okay at that time. Oh, really? Because he didn't get any charges for having the guns hmm. at this time. The only thing that they were concerned about is is any of those guns involved in the wood shooting. Maybe he's the reason you can't have guns now whenever you're... (laughs) Maybe. So they give him a citation, right, for the magnetized dice and everything. And they tell him, well, you're going to have to come to court. So he has a court date for July of 1980. So in July of 1980, he fails to appear. Oh, they also found cocaine. And so he fails to appear. So, of course, he has a warrant out for his arrest. So for three months, they do a manhunt to try and find him. And he is apprehended on a West Texas highway only because they found him because he threatened to kill himself on a bridge. Unless someone gave him a phone to talk to his friend. So he is standing on a bridge on Interstate 10, yelling and screaming. He wants a phone to talk to a friend. That friend is never discussed who it is. So of course they take him in. So the case is given before the grand jury and they have conflicting stories about him. They have testimony from a barber in Dallas who claims he cut Harrelson's hair in Dallas the day of the judge's slaying. There's a sunglass salesman that stated he came in looking for a specific type of sunglasses that day and an optician who he had come in and inquired about an appointment to get his eyes checked. So there's three witnesses in Dallas that say there's no way he was in San Antonio, he was here. And Harrelson told the grand jury he bought a cashier's check in Dallas and loaned some golf clubs to a friend in Dallas. In San Antonio, they have three witnesses that stated they saw Harrelson in the townhomes walking around the day that Judge Wood was killed. So the grand jury's very, like, we are in, we're neutral. Like, we don't have enough to say he didn't do it, but we don't have enough to say he did. Mm -hmm. So they don't know. So then our wonderful FBI do some sneaky shit. And they go and they they bug the -hmm. visiting room in the county jail. And they start taping his conversations with his friends and his family members that come to visit him. Now he's remarried now to a Joanne. And he has a stepdaughter named Teresa. So him Wait, doesn't and, he have a son from a previous marriage? That is very true. He does have a son named Woody Harrelson. And yes, he is the actor. Yes. So, fun fact. So they start listening to these tape recordings. And they're just kind of biding their time till they get something juicy. So three months later in March, the FBI finds a conversation where Mr. Harrelson has a conversation with a friend of his named Jimmy Chagra. Now, Jimmy Chagra... Oh, oh yeah was the guy that was going to be tried by Judge Mm -hmm. Wood. And in the conversation, they talk about the assassination. So now they have a link to link Harrelson to Judge Wood in the intent. So now he's friends with Jimmy Chagra, who's on his list to see him. So now they know, okay, this just, this makes sense. So they send subpoenas out to Mrs. Harrelson, her stepdaughter, Jimmy Chagra, Mm -hmm. and any other visitors that have been seeing him to see what they say and what side they give, because they don't know they've been recorded. Right. The red car that they were looking for that had been driving around. Guess who it was registered to? Harrelson's wife. Oh, no. 
It was a red 1979 Oldsmobile. Coincidentally, the car was sold in Houston two months after the death, and the FBI found it and impounded it for evidence. So whenever they subpoenaed her... And she goes in, she talks to the grand jury, she pleads the fifth. She does not answer any questions. Yep, she's been and trained. And that's her husband. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have to right. talk against him. So she says nothing. So here we are in, this is May of 1980. So the murder happened a year ago and they arrested him three months ago. So he's now been in jail for three months. The whole time he's in there without bond and he's waiting to be charged for having Again. cocaine, weapons, illegal gambling equipment three months he's already been there hasn't been given a trial or anything for those and they're trying to get him on this john wood murder so by may of 1980 174,970 man hours and seven million dollars has been spent to indict him seven million dollars in the 70s in in two years i'm sorry oh okay murder was two years ago excuse me so he's been in jail for a year and a half okay for these Little charges of just having some cocaine and some guns and some um, bit of murder, magnetized you know. dice. <laughs> loaded, so in two dice. years, seven million, seven million dollars. That's a lot of freaking money. And that's like you said in the eighties. So at this point, they have five suspects. They have Jimmy Chagra, who is a narcotics trafficker. Mm-hmm. He was a gambler who served a thirty-year sentence before. He was about to be tried. So no wonder he didn't want to go back to jail. He'd already been there for 30 years. Then we have Harrelson, who's been known as a hitman. And not a very good one. And Harrelson and Jimmy Chagra's lawyer is Joe Chagra, who's Jimmy's (laughs) brother. Right. And they don't really like him very much. Then we have Joanne Harrelson, who's his wife and owned the car that they saw driving around. Mm -hmm. And then we have Teresa Star Jasper, who is Harrelson's stepdaughter, who is Joanne Harrelson's daughter. Okay. She is, this, what the fuck? There are five suspects that they have. And they're all related. They're in all... In some way. In yep. some way, yes. So they believe these five together got rid of Judge Wood. Because how could a judge been killed without someone being an insider? And Joe Chagra is an attorney and has worked with Judge Wood. So he knows inside information and he can give that to these four. So in June, the next month, Harrelson refused to answer questions before the grand jury because they keep calling him in to the grand jury to give his statement. So they add more jail time to him because he's refusing to give them what they want. Then his stepdaughter is goes before the grand jury and she's arrested in conspiracy and involvement. So now she's in jail. Collusion and cahoots. And she's 28. She's in jail. Harrelson's in jail. And his wife is arrested for using a false name to buy the exact hunting rifle they believe is a murder weapon that killed Judge Wood. Mm. So now she's in jail. Now she gets some friends to bail her out of jail. And how shitty is this? Not just that she was part of this whole murder thing, but she lets her daughter stay in jail. No, she let her ass stay in there. After that all happened because of the man she married and allowed to be her stepfather. So two months later, they add two new charges to Harrelson's long list of crimes, which is illegally carrying a gun... And having too much cocaine. <laughs> they basically stay state, within the normal limits. Okay? They basically yeah, say yeah, that this is this is too much right. for one man. <laughs> that this it was scarf. It was on the distribution level. So now they've added okay. distribution as a crime. So he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So then they have plenty of time. So a year later, the trial finally starts. Just on the weapons, the drug, and the dice. So he goes on the stand and he tells them, no, you know, none of this happened. So they say they recovered seven guns, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, there's no way I had seven guns in that car. There's no way. They're lying. And they had no search warrant. Come on with the 
technicality. So two months later, they don't believe him, and he's given 20 years. The jury finds him guilty, and he gets 20 years for guns, cocaine, and magnetized dice. Because the murder didn't stick, they're going to go ahead they're and make still sure. They're still trying for the yeah. murder, but they're not quite there yet. But he's so, not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. So in April of 1982, which is four months later, he's finally indicted for murder. They finally have what they need, and I will tell you... How they got it. How did they get it? So he's indicted his wife, his stepdaughter, and Jimmy Chagra because they found a money trail of $250,000. His stepdaughter sings like a bird because she gets so mad. I'm sure because her, her mom, mom left her there. She served six months, finally gets enough money. Or I think she went to them and said, if you give me immunity, I will tell you everything. Mm-hmm. So they let her go and they take her statement. So she is how they all get in trouble. So what happened is Mr. Harrelson got a little too comfortable in the home with his wife and stepdaughter and started having an affair with his stepdaughter. Oh my gosh. So he's sleeping with both of them and the mom doesn't know. And she starts to fall for him. The daughter. Yes. Which is kind of how she feels was his plot. So what happened is Jimmy Chogger finds out that he's going to get in trouble. So he tells his wife, Elizabeth, Jimmy's wife, Elizabeth, tells her, oh, we've got to get out of this. So because of all the drug trafficking he has, he had over $4 million in cash. So he says, let's take a quarter of a million and let's pay somebody to get rid of the judge because he's going to give me a really long sentence. Mm-hmm. If I can get another judge, then maybe my sentence won't be so long. So... He puts his feelers out and he gets the name Charles Harrelson. At that time, Harrelson was still in jail for Degelia. So there's no way to contact him. So he he bides his time, right? Well, Judge Wood has so many cases that he's able to wait it out. Well, just so happened, the next couple months go by and Harrelson gets out early for good behavior. So Jimmy becomes friends with Harrelson. Wait, is Jimmy the attorney? Jimmy Chagra is the... No, but isn't his brother an attorney? Joe. I wonder if his brother helped Joe helped... Harrelson get out. He may have, but Joe ended up not getting in trouble because Jimmy didn't implicate him at all. I'm sure he wanted to protect him, but he didn't end up going down for anything. So Jimmy approaches Harrelson. They become friends. Then Jimmy's wife, Elizabeth, and Charles's wife, Joanne, become really good friends. Four of them start hanging out. They devise a plan that Elizabeth will put the money in a briefcase. And so that nothing suspicious happens, they have to find someone to get the briefcase. So he starts sleeping with his stepdaughter and making her believe that he loves her so that she what will do what he says. Snake. So she gets on a plane with a fake name because you know, he's good at that. Gets on a plane, goes to Las Vegas, picks up this briefcase full of cash, gets back on the plane, comes home and gives it to him. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and then she gave him the money. <laughs> or maybe at the same time. Right. I would... Uh, never mind. On the money. Yeah, totally on the money. <laughs> We'd be missing a couple hundred dollars, it's but it was definitely worth it. rainy. <laughs> so then she gives the money to him. So this time he gets the money before he does. He the gets kill. the money before. I guess yep. he learned his lesson. With well, the... if he didn't do it last time, right. then right. So him and his wife decide well, we need to buy a car, right? So his wife, under a fake name, goes and buys a car, and they get the red Oldsmobile and they with inside information which Jimmy says he gave Charles Harrelson all the information I think his brother gave the information because it's not listed where judges live for this specific reason especially the kind of 
judge that he was. And he was about to retire anyway. (laughs) She goes with that same name that she bought the car with. She goes and buys a rifle. His wife, Mm -hmm. Joanne. She buys a rifle. She buys the bullets. And they are driving around the townhome waiting for a couple of days to find out what is his schedule. Mm -hmm. When is he coming out? When does he go in? Is he going alone? And he tests out different places, which I didn't even know that he was a good shot or that he knew how to shoot from a long distance, but he did. And he found the best spot and he set up and he messed with the car so that he knew that he wouldn't just, he would have more time to shoot him and more opportunity because he'd be standing still. And he shot him and then they took off in the red car and sold the car, went home and started to spend their money. So that's the story that is, that's what the evidence says. That's what the stepdaughter says. And then Harrelson kept a diary in jail and in the diary he wrote, I've never killed a person who was undeserving of it. Oh, okay. And the last thing he wrote in his diary before this trial was, I want to be cremated with no religious services, and I want my ashes to be spread over the John H. Wood Jr. Courthouse in San Antonio, Texas. So salty. Wow. Yeah. Spread the fattest parts of my ass across (laughs) it. Jesus. (laughs) So... Fun fact, while he's on the stand to elongate the trial, he says that he assisted in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And he does that to elongate his trial Mm -hmm. and to get publicity because he wants to look good in front of the eye. Yeah, because the FBI is going to be like, fuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go talk to this wacko. (laughs) And he did that to keep from getting... The death penalty. Uh-huh. Because he knew that if he said that, that it would be years of investigation and they, they couldn't kill him. Mm-hmm. So Probably. smart. Yeah. Then he says, I don't want to be present while you give while you give my destiny, right? When I, you say the, the verdict, I don't want to be present. So as he's leaving, he looks in the, the one of the reporter's cameras and he mouths, we're going to dazzle them with our footwork. Like, I think he was telling him like... He was really proud of what yeah, he did. Yeah, like, look what I've done. This is right? my best work th- thus far. <laughs> However, they find him guilty and give him life in prison. Yeah. So I think he got a really big head mm-hmm. about what he did with DeGelia. And he's like, and he only got 15 years and for that. And even Allen Berg. Like, he had, he, obviously Allen Berg was killed by somebody else. But I think him being considered was good for his ego. Mm-hmm. Well, and then he got such a big head. What did he do in jail? He escaped. Oh, yes, yes. So on July 4th, 1995, Charles mounts a desperate escape from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Using a makeshift rope, he and two accomplices hoisted themselves out of the building, hoping to scale the walls and make a dash for freedom. But he was spotted by a guard in the watchtower. A warning shot cracked out across the courtyard. And then he was then transferred to maximum security facility in Colorado. And did he escape once or twice? This is the only time I found. Okay, so he just escaped once. Yeah. But then he ended up dying in jail in 2007? Yes, he died uh, of a heart attack on March 15, 2007. He was 69 years old. At the time of his death, him and his son Woody were close, bonding over several prison visits. From what I read, Woody Harrelson didn't know this was his dad. He heard like in the 80, like in 81, he heard all the stuff that was going on and asked his mom, hey, is that my dad? And she said, yeah, unfortunately it is. So he started going to visit him and I think he spent, I read that he spent a lot of his own money from his movies to help his dad in some of his cases to right some of the wrongs. Or he said he knew that his dad wasn't perfect and that he probably did kill some people. But on the ones that he knew his dad was innocent, he gave up a lot of cash to help him. It says that it's not something that Woody likes to talk about, but he has admitted before that 
the stories about his dad are true and that he sees a lot of himself in his dad. He said, it's just mind-blowing to see all of the things he did just like me, little things like the way he laughed and our faces are, are very similar. So if you, uh, there's a couple of um, interviews with Woody talking about his dad and like I have a link to a YouTube video of Charles Harrelson talking. So what a crazy <clears throat> ass well, web it seems like... of just insanity. Like you randomly pick the story this Charles Harrelson, we decided to do it. So we're reading on and you're like, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. And it's, what's crazy is that I think that because he got convicted of the Sam DeGellia murder, which I do believe he did. You do. I do. I do believe that he was part of that. I think because that one was a conviction, it was easier to make Allen Burke stick because even though he, the Allenberg murder happened before Sam DeGellia within a few months, his body was found first and his trial happened first. So it was easier to see him as a contract killer by the time Allen Berg came around because he had already mm-hmm. been convicted of a murder for hire plot with, even though he didn't pull the trigger. No, but Susan Attaway was a very big part of why he was accused because mm-hmm. I don't believe her story. I think she made it up. It, it makes sense because what she says there is very similar to what she says mm-hmm. in the Degelia trial. The only thing is, is that in the Degelia trial, she couldn't really say too much against Harrelson because they were technically considered common but law. But the same thing here, like Foreman was pissed the whole time. Like I said, he, mm-hmm. he said every question they asked her, he objected because it's like, this is his common law wife. She shouldn't even want to testify. Mm-hmm. And I think the, re- the only reason they let her testify was because it was against Pete Scamardo. Yeah. And she was just stating that there was a relation. Yeah. And that Harrelson told her that he did kill Degelia for Scamardo. So it was just a confession thing. And then, like, we were reading and I was like, oh, my God. This we is, got in so deep. We did so, not realize. Yeah. There was pages of newspapers I didn't read because a lot of times it's the same thing. But I thought there's nothing in here they're going to tell me that's going to change the outcome. So I, I have to wrap this up or I'll be here for days welcome all of our new people yes thank you very much maximum we are really excited this is something really fun that we enjoy doing and we hope you guys enjoy listening so that's a wrap rest in peace alan berg and john wood and sam degelia sam degelia and that was maximum john maximum john John. all right that's a wrap thanks guys all right bye y'all bye y'all love you Case File 12, Part 2, The Texas Hitman, Closed.